Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. What is leadership? Above all, what is political leadership? I think leadership in politics is something very different from leadership in the sciences. And also, I think that political scientists and social scientists find it very difficult to account for leadership. Now, scientists tell us that leadership in their disciplines makes comparatively little difference. They tend not to believe in the romantic or heroic idea of the individual pioneer. A discovery by one scientist anticipates, so they say, that of another only by a few years. Popular writings often attribute great things to individual scientists, but it is in fact difficult for scientists to be heroes, particularly in modern times, when so much of science is a collective enterprise in which it is difficult to isolate the contribution of any one individual. Often so it appears, those who do not receive Nobel Prizes in science are as deserving as those who do. Now that, of course, is not true of the arts. If Jane Austen had not lived, would anyone else have written Pride and Prejudice? Surely not. If James Joyce had not lived, would Ulysses have been written? Without Wagner, would there have been a ring cycle? Without Stravinsky, would there have been a rite of spring? It is much easier to identify individual greatness in the arts than in the sciences. The history of the novel would have been very different if Henry James had not lived. The history of music would have been very different if Beethoven had not lived, and, and so on. Now, politics seems to me more like the arts than the sciences. Now, of course, there have been proponents of scientific history, perhaps more in the past than today. And Marxists, for example, proclaimed that history was a science. But they do face problems when trying to explore the history of, for example, communism. For they are committed to the view that a communist revolution was bound to happen in Russia and that Lenin did no more than speed it up. Just as in the absence of Alexander Fleming, penicillin would have been discovered sooner or later, perhaps in the near future, so also there would have been a communist revolution, perhaps Lenin speeded it up, but no more than that. Now, most historians find that view rather implausible. Suppose the Germans had not returned Lenin in a sealed train in 1917 to Russia to foment revolution there. Suppose the Kerensky regime had arrested Lenin and put him on trial as a German agent. Well, why did they not do so? Because apparently few regarded him, the leader of a small revolutionary sect, as being of much importance. But suppose he had been imprisoned or even shot. Now, in 1917, the Bolsheviks were very divided 
as to whether there should be a revolution. And it was Lenin through his rhetoric who persuaded them. Is it really plausible that there would have been another revolution without Lenin? I, I somehow doubt it. Now, uh, uh, proponents of scientific history find themselves equally troubled when they come to explain the phenomenon of Stalinism in Russia. Was that too inevitable? If so, what does that say about the nature of socialist revolution? So the orthodox Russian communist line under Stalin's successor, Nikita Khrushchev and his successors from the 1950s onwards, they said the degeneration of the revolution under Stalin was not inevitable, but due to contingent factors, and in particular to the development of what communists call a cult of personality. <coughs> But such an explanation, if explanation it is at all, can hardly be available to a genuine Marxist. For Marx believed in the union of theory and practice. What that meant was that the test of a doctrine was not its compatibility with some abstract or textbook formula, but its success in practice. And from this point of view, Stalin was certainly a genuine Marxist because it was he who ensured the survival of the communist revolution in Russia by his policy of rapid industrialization and by winning the great patriotic war from 1941 to 1945. These successes prove, according to orthodox Marxist doctrine, that Stalin's interpretation of Marxism was in fact correct. So you can't really explain Marx-Stalinism as an accident, a mere aberration, nor as a deviation from the true path of communism, rather than a product of the forces and relations of production. A Marxist explanation leaves no room for the cult of personality. Now, in explaining Stalinism, liberal historians are in a much stronger position than Marxists because they can point to dictatorial features which they think were inherent in Bolshevik doctrine, Russian backwardness, and a host of other factors. But some liberals find themselves in a similar sort of difficulty, oddly enough, in explaining the course of 20th century Russian history. They argue, no doubt correctly, that the Russian revolution was continued. It would not have occurred if the Tsarist regime had followed wiser policies, if Lenin had not returned in a sealed train to Petrograd and, and so on. But the Stalinist repression which followed was, according to some liberal historians, inevitable once the communists had seized power. No alternative path was possible. But is that not also counterintuitive? Suppose Stalin had met with an accident in the early 1920s. Suppose Lenin had lived longer and had publicly denounced Stalin, which he might well have done. Is that really um, possible? This would have made so little difference to Russian history? Is that too not evidence of the importance of individual leadership? Would Stalinism have occurred in the same way without Stalin? I, I suspect not. Now, I suspect also that when an event confirms our political standpoint, when it's something that we welcome, we tend to say perhaps that it was inevitable, it was bound to happen. But when something occurs that we think is, is rather bad, it conflicts, if you like, with our prejudices, we say it was contingent and it could have been avoided. And perhaps we do something similar in our own personal lives. We tend to say when things go well, it was a result of our own qualities. When they go badly, we put it down to bad luck. 
Now, Marxists are not the only thinkers who downgrade the importance of individual leadership. The Russian novelist Tolstoy, who of course was far from being a Marxist, he also thought it was absurd to attribute historical events to leadership, to the acts of individuals. In the epilogue to his novel War and Peace, he writes with great irony of those who think that the French Revolution was caused by individual failings of leadership. He, he says this, Louis XIV was a very proud and self-confident man. He had such and such mistresses and such and such ministers, and they governed France badly. The heirs of Louis XIV were also weak men and also governed France badly. They also had such and such favorites and such and such mistresses. Besides which, certain persons were at this time writing books. By the end of the 18th century, there must have gathered in Paris two dozen or so persons who started saying that all men were free and equal. Because of this, in the whole of France, people began to slaughter and drown each other. These people killed the king and a good many others. At this time, there was a man of genius in France, Napoleon. He conquered everyone everywhere, i.e. killed a great many people because he was a great genius. And for some reason, he went off to kill Africans and killed them as well. So he was so clever and cunning that having arrived in France, he ordered everyone to obey him, which they did. Having made himself emperor again, he, he again went to kill masses of people in Italy, Austria and Prussia. And there too, he killed a great many. And Tolstoy continues in this vein until he reaches the restoration and the death of Napoleon. So-called leaders, Tolstoy believed, were merely vehicles for historical processes beyond the reach of any individual and which we with our limited knowledge are quite unable to understand. Napoleon, Tolstoy insists, knew as little of what was happening in the Battle of Borodino as the meanest soldier serving under him. Now, in our own day, it is the social scientists and particularly academic students of politics, or as they like to call themselves, political scientists, who tend to diminish the importance of leadership. But whereas the historians try to explain events that occurred in the past, the social scientists try to predict the future. But they tend to be as disappointed as much as the more deterministic historians have been appointed. Few, if any, predicted the election of Donald Trump in America in 2016. Few predicted the Brexit vote in the British referendum of that year. Nor have the students of elections, the sophologists, been particularly successful in predicting general election outcomes. In 2017 in Britain, most believed that Theresa May's Conservatives would win a large majority in the British general election. Instead, the Conservatives lost their majority and were left dangling in a hung parliament. In the previous general election of 2015, by contrast, most commentators thought the outcome would, would be a hung parliament, but David Cameron's Conservatives won an overall majority. After the 1959 general election in Britain, which also confounded the expectations of the electoral experts by giving the Conservatives an increased majority, the Prime Minister of that time, Harold Macmillan, 
referred to one of the latest so-called sciences, sophology, the study of how the people voted last time, how they will vote next time, all apparently capable of a mathematical calculation irrespective of the electoral campaign or the issues at stake. This sort of political Calvinism, Macmillan went on, is only redeemed by the recent discovery that their predetermined anticipations are generally proved wrong. The electors do show from time to time a regrettable outbreak of political free will. So the political scientists and the opinion pollsters don't really know much more about the future than the rest of us. We make ourselves foolish when we seek to predict the future. And despite the very sophisticated work being done by students of elections, I do not believe that we can ever have firm knowledge of why it is that people vote in the way they do. Perhaps that's fortunate because if we did know, it would be open to ill wishers to manipulate the way we vote by using that predictive knowledge to our detriment. When we talk of political or social trends, it is always worth bearing in mind the quip that the trend is your friend until the end when it bends. Perhaps if asked about future trends, it is best to answer in the words of the great jazz trumpeter, Humphrey Littleton, who was once asked, where is modern jazz going? And he replied, if I knew that, I'd be there already. All this is very comforting, for it does show that we do, after all, have free will, and that we do not have to do what political scientists and others tell us that we must do. Now, in 1970, there was another surprising result in the British general election. Everyone thought the Labour Party would win, and indeed in one poll a week before the election, the Labour Party was 12% ahead, but in fact the Conservatives won. And this elicited the following comment from the famous liberal political philosopher Isaiah Berlin, whom I'll be quoting again later. He said, I am naturally cock-a-hoop about the refutation of the pollsters. Anything that upsets careful predictions, the general assumption that vast impersonal forces are guiding our faltering footsteps in directions unknown to us, but known only to American scientists, please me immensely. There is no limit to my pleasure in the unforeseen and fortuitous. And in my view, it's an insight into the unforeseen and the fortuitous that makes the study of politics so fascinating. Now, both history and political science then, so I would argue, refute the view that leadership in politics can be ignored. And in this respect, politics is much more like the arts where leadership is important than the sciences where it is apparently less important. Let me consider some examples. A very obvious one is Britain in 1940 an outside observer might have concluded that her situation in that year was hopeless and the best she could expect was a negotiated peace with Hitler's Germany. Continued resistance, let alone victory, seemed quite impossible. Churchill, however, made it happen. How did he do it? 
Many years ago, I had a very interesting discussion on this very issue with Oliver Franks, who'd been a civil servant at the Ministry of Supply in 1940 and later became Lord Franks. He once told me no one could understand Churchill unless he'd actually been in Britain in 1940. Working in the Ministry of Supply, Franks knew better than anyone else how desperate Britain's position was. The country was told that the troops had been evacuated from Dunkirk, but not that almost all of the equipment, including tanks, had been left behind. There was very little left with which to defend Britain had the Germans been able to invade. Franks knew that better than most. Yet, so he told me, when he heard Churchill, he knew that Britain would win the war. Speaking to me many years after the war had ended, he confessed he still did not know how it was done. Now, he earlier told Churchill's doctor, who was writing memoirs of his time with the great man, he said this, Frank said this, I remember early in the war, attending a meeting on the roof of the Ministry of Supply when Winston addressed us. I came away more happy about things. He dispelled our misgivings and set at rest our fears. He spoke of his aim and his purpose, so we knew that somehow it could be achieved. He gave us faith. There was in him a demonic element, as in Calvin and Luther. He was a spiritual force. There may be a mystery about how it was done, but the scale of the achievement cannot be doubted. Now, Churchill also showed qualities of leadership, in my view, in his peacetime administration from 1951 to 1955, his, his second innings, if, if you like. This is perhaps less understood and less discussed than his wartime premiership. And his achievement in peacetime is in some ways even more remarkable because he was unwell for much of the period and hardly equipped to carry out the normal day-to-day -day administrative business. Cabinet meetings sometimes began with long rambling monologues and reminiscences of wartime glories before ministers could get down to business. Churchill was no longer able to offer the detailed interventions based on practical knowledge which had served Britain so well during the war. So he could not really provide executive or administrative leadership. He could act neither as chairman of the board nor micromanager of the administration. And if the premiership, if political leadership were primarily an executive or administrative factor, Churchill was certainly not fit for office at that time. But political leadership is not solely or even primarily an executive or administrative action, but consists in influencing opinion, in creating an atmosphere that inspires the nation, in, in teaching, if you like. And that was what Churchill had done in the 1940s in the war. Churchill's deputy during the war and later Labour Prime Minister Clement Attlee was once asked what Churchill had done to win the war. He replied laconically, he talked about it. In 1940, Churchill had detected the underlying attitude of the British people, that they did not want to give in to Hitler. He gave voice to that attitude in grandiloquent terms, terms which made the British people feel that they were living at a crucial historical moment, as indeed they were. 
1951 too, Churchill detected the underlying attitude of the British people in peacetime, a very different attitude from that of 1940. The British people now wanted a period of peace and quiet. They yearned for consolidation after the reforms and upheavals of the Attlee years of Labour government. We meet together here, Churchill told the newly elected House of Commons in 1951, with an apparent gulf between us, as great as I have known in 50 years of House of Commons life. What the nation needs is several years of quiet, steady administration, if only allowed to allow socialist legislation to reach its full fruition. That was what Churchill offered. The most vital role of the prime minister is to give a sense of direction to the government and the country. And in these terms, Churchill in his domestic policy did not fail. In 1955, after his retirement, the Conservatives succeeded in increasing their parliamentary majority and also their share of the vote, something only achieved on one other occasion in Britain since the war by David Cameron in 2015. Though Cameron's achievement was soon to turn to ashes when the British electorate voted against his wishes for Brexit in the 2016 referendum. So leadership in a democracy involves giving a sense of direction to the government and to the country. When seen in these terms, it is clear that Churchill succeeded both in his wartime and his peacetime premierships in providing leadership. His peacetime achievement is perhaps more surprising since Churchill knew less about economics than he did about foreign policy and defense and was perhaps less interested in domestic matters than in the grand themes of foreign affairs. But successful political leaders, as I've said, are not only or even primarily legislators, but teachers able to alter public opinion. Such leadership was also achieved by Margaret Thatcher, more controversial, of course, in Britain during her long premiership from 1979 to 1990, and by the American president, Ronald Reagan, during his two terms from 1981 to 1989. Their achievements lie less in the legislation that they enacted and in altering public opinion on such matters as the market economy, the welfare state, and foreign and defense policy. Even if every single one of their enactments were to be repealed, their teaching would remain, their effect would remain. Now, similar examples of leadership, which altered what seemed to be the predetermined course of history, can be seen from the history of France, both in 1940 when de Gaulle rescued French pride after national humiliation, and also in 1958. In 1958, France appeared ungovernable. The Fourth Republic appeared unable to resolve the Algerian problem, and Paris faced the possibility of a military coup by paratroops serving in Algeria. That was averted by the establishment of the Fifth Republic under de Gaulle's leadership. Even after that, however, it seemed almost impossible to resolve the Algerian problem. A stable constitutional system appeared an unlikely outcome. De Gaulle, however, like Churchill, made the improbable happen. The Fifth Republic is a political system very much in de Gaulle's image, though perhaps Emmanuel Macron is the first president of France since de Gaulle to understand the nature of the office as an elective monarchy. Remarkably, the political system of the European Union 
is also coming to be very much in de Gaulle's image. It is developing into a Europe des États. De Gaulle apparently never used the phrase Europe des Patries so often attributed to him. And this was recognized by Angela Merkel in her 2010 Bruges lecture, less noticed than Margaret Thatcher's Bruges lecture of 1988, but equally significant in my view. In that lecture, Angela Merkel insisted that Europe was to be constructed by governments working together just as much as by supranational institutions. And indeed, the Euro crisis of 2011-12 was to be resolved by national governments working together in the Council and the European Central Bank, not by the Commission or Parliament. And also the COVID crisis is being met by European leaders in the European Council. Both France and Europe, therefore, are coming to develop in de Gaulle's image. And perhaps this gives force to a comment made by the great French novelist, André Malraux, about de Gaulle, that he was a man of the day before yesterday and the day after tomorrow. It might be worth saying that it's perhaps ironic that a Europe des Etats is also the British conception of the future of Europe. And this conception is coming to success on the continent, just as Britain is departing from the European Union. Brexit is occurring just when the European Union is in the process of becoming more British. Now the development of European integration self marks a discontinuity in European history, which owes much to individual leadership. In 1945, few would have predicted it, and few in particular, would have predicted the friendship between those two ancient enemies, France and Germany, let alone the development of an integrated European Union. But these developments occurred was in large part due to one man, Jean Monnet. Now Jean Monnet was a businessman and international civil servant. Never elected to any public office, he wielded greater influence in the 20th century than most governments and politicians. He's generally regarded as the father of European unity, the first statesman of interdependence. One of his principles was that anything could be achieved in politics and perhaps in life, provided that one allowed others to take the credit. A wise aphorism in, in my view. So leadership, Jean Monnet shows, political leadership doesn't depend necessarily on being elected or on having the power of patronage. After all, Gandhi and Martin Luther King were just as much leaders as Churchill or de Gaulle. A leader is essentially a teacher, not a legislator. From the United States, we may take the obvious example of political leadership in Franklin Roosevelt. In February 1933, shortly before his inauguration as president, uh, uh, in those years, as, as opposed to now, the inauguration was in March and not in January, I should say. But shortly before Roosevelt was inaugurated, a bullet aimed for him killed his traveling companion, Chicago Mayor Anton Chernak, who allegedly said to Roosevelt, though it may not be true, but he allegedly said to Roosevelt, I'm glad it was me instead of you. Now, Roosevelt's inaugural address in which he said we have nothing to fear but fear itself, together with the measures he took to meet the immediate financial panic and later measures to establish a social security state, 
the so-called New Deal, undoubtedly helped to preserve American democracy. Roosevelt offered a great creative response to the depression, without which America might well have succumbed to one of the many demagogues who were then stalking the land. Roosevelt was also crucial in 1940 and 1941 in steering American opinion towards aiding Britain against Nazi Germany and in preparing America for war. Had Roosevelt not been able to stand for an unprecedented third term of office in 1940, it is possible that Hitler might not have been defeated. No one can tell. There are also obvious later examples on the history of American politics. President Truman's leadership during the early days of the Cold War in the late 1940s. President Kennedy's leadership during the Cuba Missile Crisis of 1962, a crisis which, if it had been mishandled, could actually have led to nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And then there was President Lyndon Johnson's leadership on civil rights legislation in the 1960s. Now, before I quoted the great liberal political philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, and I'm quoting him again, he said that one of the distinguishing characteristics of political leadership is that the active intervention of an individual makes what seemed highly improbable in fact happen. At crucial moments, he said, the impulse given freely by an individual can send things spinning in some unforeseen and unforeseeable direction. If Alexander or Caesar had not lived, history would certainly have taken a different turn. He once put this point to me personally, rather more pithily, discussing music. He said, genius is discontinuity. In music, Brahms, he said, could be predicted from Beethoven, but Debussy could not have been predicted from any of his predecessors. So Debussy was a genius, while Brahms on this criterion, though a great composer, was not. Similarly, in politics, there were really no precedents for Churchill, de Gaulle, Roosevelt or Monet. They abruptly shifted history from its previous track. They altered the course of history. The world in which we live is profoundly different because of what they did. Now, political leadership, in my view, has less to deal with intellect or knowledge Academics notoriously make poor political leaders, and in my view, academics should steer well clear of politics. But political leadership depends instead upon a historical instinct, an understanding of what Bismarck once called the hoofbeat of history. And perhaps the study of history is of more use to the fledgling politician than study of the social sciences. Churchill would certainly have agreed with that, I think. He was steeped in history. Now, even when we consider an area of policy such as economic growth, seemingly slow moving and determined by fundamental cultural and historical forces, political leadership can make a difference. A paper in 2005 by two economists, Benjamin Jones and Benjamin Olkin, analyzed whether changes in national leaders were systematically associated with changing economic growth. <clears throat> they investigated cases where changes in leadership were essentially random 
following the end of a leader's rule through death, other natural causes or an accident, their conclusion was, and I quote, leaders matter, growth patterns change in a sustained fashion across these leadership transitions. The magnitude of these changes is large, a growth change of 1.5 percentage posts, percentage points, I'm sorry, 1.5 percentage points per year. That effect was stronger in autocratic regimes, where of course leaders have greater powers vested in them, but there were also effects in democracy. There is also a leadership effect with effect to institutional transitions. Mikhail Gorbachev was clearly a driving force in the transition from communism. Had he not been there in the early 1980s, the history of Russia might have been very different. The process of reconciliation in South Africa would have been very different without Nelson Mandela. Now, in a second paper, Benjamin Jones and Benjamin Olken showed that assassinations of political leaders can also change the history of individual countries. Small elements of randomness, the path of a bullet, the timing of an explosion, small shifts in a leader's schedule <coughs> can result in substantial changes in national outcomes. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the, the, the uh, Austrian throne in 1914 is an obvious example. Who knows whether there would have been a world war had the bullet that killed him actually missed its target. But of course, it's important to remember that political leadership is an amoral quality. It can be used for good or evil ends. Strong leaders can do great harm as well as great good. To quote Isaiah Berlin yet again, the oppression, torture, murder, which can be laid at the doors of Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot. These are unparalleled. They were not, Berlin believed, natural disasters, but preventable human crimes. And whatever those who believe in historical determinism may think, they could have been averted. It would be difficult to deny that the five dictators mentioned by Berlin were not also in their way men of political genius, even if their genius was very malign. And it's also important to remember that the democracies do not need strong leaders all the time, but only in crisis situations. In Bertolt Brecht's play, Life of Galileo, one of the characters declares, unhappy is the land that breeds no heroes. The reply from Galileo is no, unhappy is the land that needs a hero. Now in normal times, countries may not need strong leaders. Switzerland, one of the world's most successful democracies has managed perfectly well for many years without one. Few even amongst political buffs could name the current president of the Swiss Confederation. So, it's clear that leadership poses a problem for democracies. How is a system to ensure that it generates strong leaders when they are needed, but also ensure that those leaders do not use their powers for evil ends? To give someone the power to do good is also to give someone the power to do evil. Liberals in America who lauded the strong presidencies of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, <coughs> 
were taken aback when Lyndon Johnson led America into the Vietnam quagmire, and then when Richard Nixon escalated the war. In 1973, Arthur Schlesinger, the court historian of the Kennedy administration, and previously a somewhat uncritical admirer of the imperial presidency, recanted in a book of that name, which expressed alarm at the growth of presidential power. Liberals were further discomforted when Ronald Reagan used the power of the presidency to row back on the social reform achievements of a previous generation, and when George W. Bush took America into Iraq on what some believed was a false prospectus. Now the answer to this conundrum lies surely in the democratic scrutiny of leaders by institutions and by the people. In the British system of government, the leader has to operate within a system of collective cabinet government, and that has caused problems for those not accustomed to it, individual leaders. Shortly after he became prime minister in 1828, the Duke of Wellington, who'd previously of course been a great military leader, he'd won the Battle of Waterloo, he was asked what he thought of his first cabinet meeting. He confessed that he had found it a strange experience. I gave them their orders, he explained, and they stayed around to discuss them. He didn't know what cabinet government was really about. Now the Watergate crisis in America in 1973 to four showed that when presidents fail, institutions can work. Perhaps the same is true in relation to president, soon to be ex-president Trump in contemporary America. Perhaps he too has been curbed by effective institutions. It is too early to tell. Had there been effective legislative scrutiny of war plans in the military autocracies of Germany and Russia in 1914, it is possible the First World War would have been avoided. Hitler certainly could have ne never have carried out his aggressive foreign policy if it had been effectively scrutinized by democratic institutions. But even in democracies, there is in fact, it must be confessed, a difficulty. It is that in, a foreign, in foreign policy, executive powers tend to overwhelm legislative powers so that legislative scrutiny uh, comes to be severely limited. Now, beyond institutions, the powers of leaders in modern democracies can also be restricted, though also enhanced by the people. For the power of leaders depends in large part upon their retaining the confidence of the people. In Britain, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair both enjoyed a full plenitude of power after their landslide electoral victories in 1983, 1987, 1997, and 2001. John Major lost much of that power in 1992 when the voters reduced his majority from 102 to just 21. And Theresa May lost even more of that power in 2017 when the election converted her small overall majority into a hung parliament. If our leaders are too strong and dictatorial or too weak and failing to provide leadership, sometimes the blame lies with us, the people, not with them. It's we, the people, who decide by our votes how powerful our leaders are to be. But all the same, I would conclude that democracies have suffered more from weak than from strong leadership. Had democratic leaders in Italy, Germany and Spain been stronger between the wars, 
dictatorship could have been avoided. Conversely, without the strong leadership of Franklin Roosevelt, American democracy might have been subverted in the 1930s by Huey Long, the subject of Sinclair Lewis's novel, It Can't Happen Here, and a Robert Penn Warren's novel, All the King's Men. Or perhaps it would have been subverted by Charles Lindbergh, who in Philip Roth's novel, The Plot Against America, becomes president in 1940 and adopts isolationist, anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi policies. Now, what is clear in conclusion is that the phenomenon of leadership cannot be explained in terms of scientific theories of history or the social sciences. For political leaders, twist history out of what had seemed a predetermined shape. It is for this reason that scientific history and political science have proved such disappointing disciplines. The hallmark of a science, after all, is that it yields laws or law-like generalizations and an agreed body of theory. Physics has its laws of thermodynamics, economics the laws of supply and demand, and no one will be taken seriously as a physicist or economist who does not accept these laws. But there is no equivalent in history or political science to these laws. There are few, if any, universal laws of history or of political science. And part of the reason for this is that the phenomenon of leadership disrupts tidy generalizations. There is perhaps a lesson in this for political scientists, for it may be the study of politics by contrast with economics is not a science at all, but a hermeneutic or interpretative study. Perhaps political science is but a particular way of looking at history. If that is so, the discipline needs to seek closer ties with history rather than emancipating itself from it as so many of its contemporary practitioners seek to do. As with history, political science needs to seek not law-like generalizations, but a heightened and deepened understanding of the specifics. If we are to understand in particular the phenomenon of leadership in politics, we need to understand not only what is common to different societies, but even more what is particular contingent and unique. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.